again with Dr. Michal Barashir-Sigal. Uh, we're discussing stories of Minim for heretics in the Talmud, and I think we can jump right in. So very excited to be here. Thank you, Dr. Sigal. Hi. Hello, everyone. Let me just share my screen. I'm very happy and excited to be uh, here again. And um, uh, can you see my can you see my screen? Uh, so we, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see you all. And I just want to uh, say once more that this talk can be heard independently of the previous one, but just like the previous one, I'm very happy to hear from you. If you have any comments or any, um, uh, any questions you want to ask, please feel free to use the chat or to email me later on. I'm happy to always hear from uh, people who listen to my talk. I'm, I'm, uh, I know that this is, uh, it can be a lonely task to talk to myself for an hour uh, on Zoom. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to hear from people who listen to my talk. So this is uh, here with us. So what we, we, we did last time, we, we um, put some time into understanding the corpus of Minim stories or heretic stories in the Talmud. We talked about insults and, and the categories of outsiders, heretics, um, by talking about a few words that that are used in this kinds of stories such as um, minim but also fools and we talked about parallel terms such as hypocrites and we talked about blind fools and we talked about um uh, in 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 second temple uh literature in, in Qumran. and we talked about semantic fields in which you uh create a corpus of text in which the other right the one you're arguing with is uh being called a name Right, a name of a heretic or a name of a fool. And we talked about fool being not uh, mentally impaired, but rather theologically challenging, right? Theologically wrong or, or, or leading people astray. And uh, and we talked about meaning stories or heretic story, which we will dedicate this talk and the, the talk next week, uh, which are in my books that, uh, that I, uh, this, this series of lectures are based on my book. Uh, where I try to look at these stories and try to understand the genre of literature, right? What's the category of stories that talk about heretic stories in which the rabbis present themselves as talking to another, right? To a heretic, to a fool, to someone who's mistaken, right? So this uh, kind of uh, literature and the minim stories in the Babylonian Talmud, the heretic stories are part of this uh, genre of literature. And today, um, we're going to talk about one of the stories next week. But what's important for me is that while talking about many stories or stories of rabbinic figures and their meaning with heretics, uh, I'm basically claiming that this is a representation, in fact, not of an actual meeting between heretics or Christians in this case and the rabbis, but actually a literary representation, in fact, of the actual connection between Jews and Christians in the ancient world, meaning someone knew that the, the composer of this knew about Christian tradition and composed the story, but it's based on historical realities of the time. This is, this is where we, we talk about the map, right? This is the area in which Babylonian Talmud is redacted, right? Modern day Iran and Iraq, the two rivers uh, leading into the, the Persian Gulf, the Euphrates and the Tigris were leading into uh, the Persian Gulf. And the Jewish area, which is uh, uh, right about here, these are the green. Uh, these the Jews are in green, and the Christians are in blue. 
And what this map, which I uh, am proud of because I'm the first to actually create it, this map, which is black, Jewish, period, and Christian period on the earth, basically shows the Jewish in high time. And the building that was being rejected and created in this area, uh, the, the Babylonian Talmud, which is being created in this area where the Jews live, is really being created in the area where Jews and Christians live. So you can see the blue uh, in this area of the Christians. Christians and Jews live side by side, and the Babylonian Talmud represents this interaction, this knowledge of Christian tradition, this knowledge of, uh, um, of Christian uh, biblical interpretation uh, to be, uh, I see someone saying, Kaya, that they can't hear me very well. Is that true? Should I? Uh, it's been a little bit choppy for me, but I've been, I think I've been able to make out what you've been saying. Let, let me know if I need to. Uh, I think, yeah, it might be. I'm wondering if it will be better with. I, I'm having a hard time hearing also. Okay. okay. Let me, so let me take the off. question let me is take just off. whether that's an internet issue or an audio issue. Um, so yeah, maybe if we try without the earphones, that might help. Let me know. Can you hear me? Uh, I think now, a bit of without the earphones, is that better? Um, I'm not sure. You're choppy? A little bit. I think there's a bit of delay. Um, it I seems don't... like a, it might be a problem with your internet, not with uh, the audio input. Um, Let me see. Oh, uh, Noah is, is suggesting sitting closer to the mic. Closer to the... Okay. Is that better? If I'm closer, is that yeah. better? Yeah, I think, I think that's better. Hopefully it will hold up. Okay. Um, okay. So basically, and this is interesting because this is what I pulled from text to people, right? So we're going to use the Babylonian Talmud and the, um, the, the, the text about um, heretics talking to rabbinic figures as a way to, to ask a question about Jewish-Christian interaction in this area. How much did the rabbis or the rabbinic figures composing the Babylonian Talmud know about Christianity. And we're gonna use rabbinic stories about the encounters with heretics to talk about this. And I'm gonna give an example today. And this is, this is the question that's gonna interest us, right? So this is the question that historically speaking is of interest to me, right? So what did the Babylonian Talmud tell me about Jewish Christian interaction? And in what way does it tell me about this? What, what do I learn from this? Is the, the audio okay now, Claire? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Please signal to me if you can't hear me and I'll try to fix Okay. So let's start today's uh, uh, talk, but again, reminding us uh, of a few vocabulary words, right? When we're talking about minim, min is a singular of minim plural, literally meaning heresy, but they appear, minim stories appear uh, in all over rabbinic literature and scholarship does not believe that min can be um, it, um, translated into one term. Mean does not mean Christian. Mean does not mean Gnostic. Mean does not, there isn't one definition of what a mean is. It's probably a range of heretical views portrayed in the mouth of someone. And we talked a lot about last week about the question of what does it mean to call someone, what does it mean to call someone a mean, right? So what, what do we mean by that, right? Well, what's the, what's the, the use of an insult or the use of a term or use of a of a nickname does to this group of people who with heretical views. And again, this is a representation of my book, which you can see on the side and a kind of a summary of it. 
And even though many stories appear all over rabbinic literature, the vast majority of them appears in the Babylonian Talmud. And this is what I'm focused on. This is the focus that is of interest to me. And the story I chose for today is a story found in tractate uh, Yevamot, right? This is uh, quoted according to Manuscript Munich. And we're gonna read straight from the translation into, we're gonna read the, 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 the translation into English uh, right after I, uh, I, I read the Hebrew as well. So we'll do both. Uh, so the story says, just start like this. So a certain mean, right? Uh, again, what does the mean mean, right? This is a heretic, right? A certain, uh, again, this wordplay doesn't work when I teach this in Hebrew, right? So I'm going to enjoy this while I can in English. And what does the mean mean? So this a mean, a, a, a heretic, says to Rabban Gamil, this, you are a people, am, a nation, whose master, Mare, has performed chalitza for it. And in a second, we'll talk about what does chalitza mean exactly. But he said, you were, you, you had the, 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 the ceremony of chalitza performance. Why? And he has a proof text. The proof text is from Moshe, the Ktiv. And this is a quote from Isaiah. With their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has mehem. He has drawn off from them. Right? So the word literally means means drawn off, right? He has gone off from them, but the word is indeed chalat. So the mean learns from this about the ceremony. Of Chalitza, and in a second we'll talk about it. So Rabban Gamliel says to him, I'm going to read the whole story and then we'll translate and go slowly to the details. And Rabban Gamliel says back to him, right? So he says, Rabban Gamliel says, same thing. Fool. We know this term, right? We talked about this last week. Fool means uh, someone, you know, mistaken. For is it written they drew for him? No. Right? It says to him, he has drawn. From them. Right? Now, in the case of the Yevama, whose brothers drew off her sandal, could there be any validity in the act? Now, we need a few more details to understand the story, which we'll go over very slowly now. So, uh, if you haven't followed so far, that's okay. We'll start from scratch. By the way, there's a few manuscript differentiations that you can quickly look on in the footnotes. But, mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what we're talking about. So what stands in the background of this story? So this background of the story is a ceremony called chalitza, or taking off of the shoe. And this is a, this is a, um, is there a problem with the, what's the feedback? Thank you, Yael, for pointing it out. I think it's been resolved. I think it should be fine now. Okay. So the, uh, um, the, the, the ceremony we're talking about, and this is, you can see a, a carving, a wood carving from the 1868 from Amsterdam. The, we're talking about uh, a ceremony in which a shoot has been taken off. So what is this ceremony about? So we're talking about something, by the way, this is uh, my husband and me in, in uh, uh, um, uh, a famous uh, library in Ireland. And, uh, uh, and, and this is a picture from a, a 13th century Bible. Uh, and there's a, a depiction of the ceremony of the Chalitza, where the, I take off the shoe. 
And what are we talking about when we're talking about taking off the shoes? So this is based on Deuteronomy 25. And in Deuteronomy 25, the Bible describes a certain uh, situation in which, and then let's read the verses and explain what we're talking about. So this is the ceremony uh, uh, that uh, comes to resolve a certain situation on the ground. So what's the situation? Um, people are still complaining about the audio. I'm so sorry. Should we try the earphones again? Am I close enough to the mic? Can't hear you, Chaya. Sorry. Um, I think that this is still better than it was with the earphones. I don't think going back to the uh, earphones will help. I think to me, it sounds like it might be uh, actually, that might not be true. I'm not sure what we can do to improve it. Um, the only thing I can think of is that if there's an internet uh, problem, then both you and anyone else who is having trouble can try um, closing any other things that are taking up internet um, bandwidth for them. Um, but I think that uh, Jessica says that she is all right, and I'm also finding it like reasonably clear. So I think the best thing we can do is just to plow on. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, so in any case, so the, the, the Bible tells us the following stories. If a brother is a living together and one of them dies, right? So there's two brothers and they live in the system that's described in the Bible as a family uh, living close by and a brother dies and he doesn't have any kids, okay? So the Bible says, Right, so if a brother dies and he has no kids, uh, his widow will not go out of the family and marry someone outside the family. Who will who what, what will be done to her? The husband's brother needs to take her and marry her, and this is what's called a yevama. Right, this is the ceremony of yibum. Right, yibum, where he uh, uh, marries his brother's wife. Now, the reason for that actually is uh, is a very social reason, right? So first of all, uh, it means that the, 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 the property stays within the family, right? We don't take it out of the family and we're, we're keeping it together. But socially, it's also a kind gesture for the wife because, you know, women widows were very uh, often left alone without protection and without financial uh, um, uh, and this is a way to to help them right to keep them in the family and, and take control of them and 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 give them a support system and and, and belonging this is a but and then the first son she bears with the new husband the husband will carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be brought it out from israel so that's that's a for purpose also that the son that you know uh, is born will carry on the name of, of his dead father. Now, what happens if the man doesn't want to marry her? He's happy with his wife. I don't know. He doesn't fancy her. They're not friends. He doesn't want her. Right? So what happens? He said, However, if a man doesn't want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, my husband brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel and he will not fulfill the duty of brother-in-law to me. And she is very upset. She says she's upset. He doesn't want to marry him. So the elders of the town will summon him and talk to him and try to convince him. And if he's persistent saying, I do not want to marry her. So his brothers, and then this is what happens. So if the yibum doesn't happen, a chalitzah happens. So what's the chalitzah? 
his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the men who will not build up his brother's family line. So there's a ceremony of like disengagement between them, right? She takes off his shoes, she spits in his face and disgusts and say, you are not willing to do what you're supposed to do. And this, you know, breaks the ties between them and she's on her own. And this man Shanaan shall be known in Israel, the family of the ancestors, right? So this is the ceremony of Khalifa. Now let's go back to our story. So when I would look at the stories in Yavamad, let's look at what happens. So in fact, the story describes a situation in, when, uh, in, in which a mean, a heretic, comes to Rabban Ganyan and he says, God decided to perform the ceremony of Khalifa, taking off the shoe and breaking off from you. He did that ceremony to you, that to, to, to the people of Israel. Why? And then he looks at Hosea and in Hosea when it says that God turned away from Israel, the term that's being used, the, 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 the verse that's being the, the verb that's being used is chalat, which is the same as taking off of the shoe. So the heretic here is very um, know, philological in nature, and he does this midrash where he says, God has performed the ceremony of Khalifa. He has taken off his shoe, he has broken off from you. And you are no longer God's people, right? Because God doesn't want you anymore. He has done the Khalifa from you. Now, Rabban Gami answers by saying, you fool, right? You are mistaken. You are theologically mistaken. Because if you look carefully at the verse, the verse says, mm-hmm. right? It says, he has taken off from them. He says, listen. In the Khalifa ceremony, the husband, the brother's shoe is taken off by the woman, right? So if you are the one performing the Khalifa saying, I don't want you anymore, the shoe is taken off by the other side, right? The the wife, the woman. And in this case, the verb doesn't work in the verse because it says, mm-hmm. he has taken off the shoes from them, as if God has taken the shoe from the people. That doesn't work halachically. If the husband, he says, if the husband, if, if the brother, says, says Rabban Gamliel, if the brother takes off the shoe from the wife, the chalitza doesn't work. It has no halachic validity. So this, this midrash about God performing chalitza to people doesn't work according to halachic details. End of the story. And this is the story we're, we're, we're going to deal with today. This is a fun one. I hope you agree with me in which a man, a heretic, comes into the room and talks to Rabban Gamliel, and he has a very halachic question. He says, do God has performed Khalifa on you? And he answers, they are as his proof. And then the Rabban Gamliel answers back and says, let's say I agree with you that this verse talks about Khalifa, talks about removing of the shoe, which obviously, originally, philologically, this is not what the verse is about. But let's say we go with you, it doesn't work because the way the verb is being used, right? he has taken off from them the shoe, doesn't work with the halachic details of the Khalifa. And this is where the story ends. Now, you know, when I was writing my book, one of the things that bothered me the most about all of my heretic stories is that at first glance, they look, let me, let me borrow my words from Abban Gamliel, they look foolish. Right? They look 
weird. This is this is a, a, a short story that someone composed at some point in which a heretic asks a question that looks foolish, right? That's easily refutable. What do you mean, Chalitza? Chalitza doesn't work this way. And this is done. Why did anyone write such a story? Why would anyone keep it in the Talmud? If it doesn't work to begin with and it's easily refutable, what's the point? And this is what was my motivation when writing my book, is to try to say, well, it looks foolish to us and we don't understand the motivation because we're missing a piece of the puzzle. What's the, the piece of the puzzle that we're missing? And this piece, the piece of the puzzle, and this is what I will suggest in today's class, is Christian interpretation of the Chalitza ceremony. I think these stories are all, they all look, and you can see in the 19th century, uh, in the beginning of 20th century, scholars who look at this stories and I don't know what to do with that. They're like, oh, this is our foolish or, or stupid Christians who don't know about Salaha and don't know about Chalitza. And the, um, the, the reason that they look stupid to us or they look foolish to us is because we don't understand the full picture. We don't understand that. In fact, these stories preserve rabbinic engagement with contemporary Christian understanding of the biblical verses. And in this case, if we know what the Christians are saying about the ceremony of Chalitza, taking the shoe, the story will become much clearer. And in fact, will present to us rabbinic engagement with contemporary Christian views. So that's my hypothesis. This is what I want to share with you. And, uh, and this is what I'm going to try to do. So let's start first with sandals a little bit. So we do see in Christian interpretation when they look at sandals, that sandals or removing of, the, of sandals are um, often read metaphorically, right? So, so, so let's look, for example, about Jerome, right? So Jerome, one of the church fathers, uh, and he writes a homily on Exodus, and look what he says. He grasps the mythical, mystical meaning of the Holy Spirit. As long as we're talking through the wilderness, it is necessary that we wear sandals to cover and protect our feet. But we, we shall have entered the land of the promise. We shall hear with Jesus, Yoshua, uh, the son of Nun, right? Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place upon which you are standing is holy. When, therefore, we enter into the kingdom of heaven, we shall have no need of sandals or for protection against this world. But to give you a new thought, we shall follow the lamb that has been slain for us. So Jerome looks at the verse in which Yoshua, uh, before he enters the land, is told by God to remove his sandals because the land he stands on uh, is holy. And Jerome looks at it and says, you know, this is a metaphor. This is a, uh, this is a allegorical meaning of what we Christians are saying. When the Jews were walking into the desert and they had, uh, they had, they had need of um, the sandals, they had need of sandals because the sandals are the commandments. And when they reach the land of Israel, the promised land, they no longer need the commandments. So they take off their sandals. And the removing of the sandals by Yoshua Binun is the allegorical, it's the metaphor for removing the people of Israel, replaced by the Christian, who no longer need the commandments. So we see here, and this is just one of many uh, such uh, metaphorical readings, that the removing our sandal or sandal is perceived 
metaphorically, right? A sandal is not a sandal. A sandal is a, is a metaphor for commandments. And removing those sandals means no need for actual physical commandments anymore because um, we, we no longer need that. We have Jesus, so we don't need to do the commandments. The sandals are red metaphorically. In addition to that, you see something else used with when we're, when they're, the early Christians are doing metaphorical reason of, stand, of sandals, they also talk about the transfer of, of chosenness from one to another using sandals. For example, Matthew 3 says, um, uh, John the Baptist is, is, is a guy who baptized people in the Jordan River and he believes in the times of Jesus. And he says in Matthew, I baptize you with the water for repentance. But after me, says John the Baptist, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Okay? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I am not worthy to carry this, the shoes of Jesus, right? Someone who's, uh, I am not good enough to untie his sandals. This is John or to carry his sandals. So this is what Matthew and John say. Uh, and then, so shoes or carrying off shoes or taking off shoes is seen as a metaphor for worthiness, right? We actually see that in rabbinic literature as well. If you if you were a student, you have to remove the sandals of your master, right? So so sandals or taking off shoes is something that sees as uh, symbolically or metaphorically as transfer of authority or signaling authority or or, or uh, um, uh, hierarchy. Right? So who's, who's more important than the others? So this is something that happens often. Now, this doesn't stop here because combining the two, right? Looking at sandals metaphorically, but also looking at the, the moving of shoes as moving uh, dominance or moving power from one to another is combined in the ceremony of Chalitza, who is read metaphorically in early Christianity. So for example, Gregory the Great, fifth century, uh, he says the following about the Chalitza ceremony, the taking of the shoes. And he says, it was a custom, says Gregory the Great, among the ancients, that if someone was unwilling to take the wife, he should be taken. He should have come to her as a bride before a right of relationship who would undo his sandals. Okay, so he says, listen, in the Bible, right, in the custom among the ancients, if uh, someone would, was unwilling to do his right and, and marry his sister-in-law, she would undo his, uh, they would undo the sandals, right? And then Gregory takes this and reinterprets this allegorically. And he says, how did Christ appear among men and women if not as the bridegroom of the Holy Church? So Jesus is like the, the bridegroom. And John said of him that he had the bride as the bridegroom, since people considered John the Christ, the fact that he denied, he was able to declare and as a wilderness and to undo the strap of Christ's sandals. So look, Gregory connects the two, right? The Chalitza ceremony and the fact that John said that he's unworthy to carry his shoe. So we see that, uh, uh, and Gregory, and here I'll stop here, he says the fact that John the Baptist says, I'm unworthy to carry his shoe, is connected to the ceremony of Chalitza, right? The fact that John says, I'm unworthy to carry his shoe, is, is connected to the ceremony of taking off the shoe, right? This, the shoe thing and removing the shoe is about who's more powerful, right? Who's, who's more important? More than that, let's look at 
this guy named Chomatius. This is a long text, and we're not going to read the whole thing. But Chomatius says on Matthew, now we must focus on what is meant by these sandals from a spiritual sense. I'm going to go into sandals. I'm going to look carefully at sandals, says Chomatius. We know that Moses said long ago, put off your sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Remember, this is Moses in the bush, the burning bush. He was told to take off his shoes. And also Joshua, the son of Nun, removed the, the latchet from your sandals, right? So we know that these two leaders, Moses and Joshua Binun, took off their shoes, said Samatius. But now we're going to reinterpret this. But as to why they are ordered by the Lord to the sandals, we must understand the type of future truth. Now look what the movie's going to do. According to the law, if a man is unwilling to accept the wife of his brother after his brother's death, he should take off his shoe so that another may marry and succeed by uh, right of law. As to the commandment prefigured in the law, we find it fulfilled in Christ who is the true bridegroom of the church. Therefore, because neither Moses, the lawgiver, nor Yeshua, the leader of the people, could be the bridegroom of the church, not without good reason, it is said to them that they should remove the sandal from their feet because the true future graduate of the church, Christ, was to be expected. So look at the move that Chromatius does. He says, listen, sandals are not sandals. Sandals are a sign of hierarchy. And the, the, the ceremony of Chalitav taking off the shoe shows that when you take off your shoe, you're basically saying we're disconnected and moving this authority, the spiritual authority to someone else, right? So we see that in the Chalita. And now look at Moses, look at Yeshua Benun. They're told to take off their shoes. They take off their sandals. Why? Because they represent the old Torah. And we have a new Torah now, this is Jesus. So this is why they take off their shoe, just like in the Chalitza, when taking off the shoe means a break, a removal of what, what is to be done. The same thing, Chromatis connect those three and say, Moses and Yeshua Benun take off their shoe because they no longer can represent, right, the, 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 the true leaders of the church because Jesus is, right? And taking off the sandal represents that. Having said all that, right, you know, this is Ambrose as well. Ambrose says the same thing, right? Uh, remove the sandals from your feet. Moses, who was chosen the leader, might be thought to be the bridegroom. It was for that reason. But Yoshua Binu removed his sandals. So we see the same thing that uh, uh, we saw. As Ambrose also says, the bride, uh, uh, the friend, it means alone, the husband of the church. He's the only one who's expected. So we see. Different Christian writers, Ambrose, 4th century, Gregory and Chromatius, 5th century, uh, Christian writers connecting the Chalitza ceremony to metaphorical and allegorical reading of Yoshua Benun and Moses and John saying this about Jesus, all of them saying that removal of the truth symbolizes the removal of the old authority and moving it to someone else. Having said all that, right, this is a psychological uh, reading of the biblical sandals that we saw in Christian writing, and the connection made between the removing of the shoe by Moses and Yoshua and Binun on the one hand, and the statement by John the Baptist on the other to the Chalitza ceremony, we see in all those Christian writers. And the Chalitza removed the status of the graduate of Israel from the keeper of the old law and gave it to the new groom, Jesus. So this is the move that Christians do with sandals. We learn now 
this is what Christians do with the ceremony of Chalitza. This is what Christian writers do with sandals, metaphorically. Having learned this in the past, whatever, 20 minutes or so, we were now experts on how Christians read the Chalitza. Now I want to go back to the meaning story and re-understand the question of the meme. My suggestion to you is that the meme here represents the Christian view of Chalitza. And this story, which looks at first sight to be idiotic or foolish or short and meaningless, is in fact a rabbinic interaction with this view of Chalitza by Christian writers. And whoever writes the story knows that and tries to combat that claim. And let's read this again. So the heretic, the Christian heretic, which represents the view we just saw in Christian writers of the time, says to Gabriel, God has taken the shoe from you. He, he has performed Chalitza on you. We just saw that, right? We saw Ambrose and we saw Matthew, and we saw that they were saying that. Christian writers, the fourth and fifth century, were saying God performed Chalitza on you people. That he transferred his, you know, his favoritism, who's his favorite son, he transferred that from the Jews to the Christians, to the new Israel. And we know that this is an actual claim done by contemporaneous Christian writers. And this is the argument put in the mouth of Amin. It's a little bit fancier than that because this is an actual use of Hosea verse to mean that, right? So Hosea is used to do that because of the Chalat verse. But this is an actual Christian claim. And that's a serious one, right? Because the, 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 the Christians are basically turning to the Jews and saying, you are no longer the favorite son. You are no longer the favorite people. We are. God, love, God loves us more. And they're using Chalitza ceremony to prove that. And I think the story represents a rabbinic anxiety from that claim. Is that true? Is the fact that we suffer now in Galut and we have a hard time means the fact that the, the, the Christianity now becomes beginning of the fourth century becomes the ruling religion they have won big time in the history of the world, does this mean that God no longer wants us? Are we no longer God's favorite? This is an, an anxiety-producing claim, right? But now we have the answer. So what's the answer? Now, this is theologically wrong because we have the halakha on our side. And the halakha on our side says, but he cannot perform chalitza on us because this is not how chalitza is done. He doesn't take off the shoe uh, from us. We're supposed to take it from him. And we never did that. We never made that act. This is according to the verse. It doesn't work. So halakhically, the, 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 ceremony, the ceremony of chalitza is not binding. Now, this is a good answer when you look at the, you know, on, on, in the, on the um, syntax of the, of the verse in Hosea. It's a good one if you, you're taking rabbinic halakha. But at the end of the day, this is a story that represents two sides of the story. There's a Christian claim that we know is out there, and there's a rabbinic answer to that, but there's anxiety there. Who God loves more, right? Who, who is God's chosen people? And this is what the story represents. So basically, my claim to you in, this, uh, in, in my book is that, let's take a step back. As a historian, this story tells me a lot. It tells me a lot about the, what did the rabbis know about Christianity? They knew what the Christians were saying about the ceremony of Chalitza. 
They knew very well what the, the Christians are using chalitza to claim metaphorically that taking off the shoe is used metaphorically to, to proclaim the moving of the choosiness of the people from the Jews to the Christian. That's what the Christians are saying. And the rabbis know about the claim and try to refute it by using rabbinic halacha. Now, again, I think it's an inner rabbinic argument. This is not towards the Christian. This is an inner rabbinic uh, discussion and an attempt to deal with Christian claims. But whoever writes this in order to write it, you need to know what the Christians are saying. So as a historian, this is extremely important for me because now I can tell you that the rabbis, whoever wrote the story, knew about Christian claim in the fourth and fifth century. They knew about what they were saying and they're trying to refute it. So this is a testimony to Jewish Christian engagement over scripture that's found in this heretic story. And this is why heretic stories are so important because they convey knowledge of Christianity by the rabbis and, and what the rabbis thought important enough to create a story about and put it in the Talmud for us in 2022 to read, right? So the rabbis, whoever wrote the story, knew enough about Christianity to create the story and put it in the Talmud for us to read. Okay, so far so good. Now I have one more thing to deal with. The Christian, according to this and according to the writers we wrote, say that God performed chalitza on his people. But Rabbi Daniel is right. It doesn't really work with the syntax of the verse, right? Because it says that God took the shoes from them. So how did the Christian think that this would work, right? Well, what would be a Christian answer to that, right? That's the founder of Rangaria says, this is, doesn't work according to Rabbi Daniel. Huh? What would Christians say about this? Now, here I did a little bit of a... Uh, uh, this is a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a pleading. They were very quickly, Gregory and, 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 and the others. And in fact, if you read Gregory and the others, you realize something very interesting. So the Christian claim, go back to my story, the Christian claim that God has performed chalitza on his people depends on the fact that God is the one doing the chalitza. He takes off the shoe, right? Otherwise, it doesn't work, right? This is exactly what my but look carefully at what Gregory, which I read very quickly before, said. Let's read him again. It was a custom among the ancients that if someone was unwilling to take the wife he would be taking, he should have come to her as a bridegroom to write a relationship him and would undo his sandal. When Gregory the Great described the ceremony of Chalitza, he said, the men take off his own shoe. He doesn't say the woman takes off the shoe. He says the man takes his own shoe. That's weird. First, it doesn't go with the tronomy that we just read. And second, it works very well with Hosea to say that God has forsaken his people, right? Because he had to take off his shoe. And this is how Gregory described. Why would he do that? And look again with Chromatios, right? According to the law, if a man is unwilling to accept the wife as the brother of his brother's death, he should take off his shoes. So the Christians are reading Chalitza ceremony in a different halachic manner. The, according to Christian halacha, in the chalitza ceremony, the man takes off his shoe, not the woman. And if read like this, the main claim here, God has performed chalitza and it works perfectly well. So what What's the right halakha, right? According to Christian halakha, this is now chalitza is being done, and this works very well with Hosea and can help 
the Christian claim that God has forsaken his people. Only according to rabbinic halakha, who goes by Deuteronomy, when the woman takes it off, then it's refutable. But again, look how, let's stop here for a second and talk about the story. The story represents real knowledge of Christian halakha. Not only do they use chalitza to talk metaphorically about taking off and moving the, 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 the chosenness from the people to Christianity, Someone who writes the story knows that Christians think that the man takes off the shoes. And they're saying, this doesn't work according to our, our halakha and Deuteronomy. But it is what the Christians are saying. But let's talk a little bit about why would the Christians say that? Why would the Christians think that the man should take off his shoes? For this, we have to go to the book of Ruth. And the truth is, the Bible has two ceremonies that have to do with taking off the shoes. The one is Deuteronomy, is the one that we read, and this is a rabbinic halakha when they talk about chalitza, use Deuteronomy. But taking off the shoe is found in another source as well. This is in the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, you know, obviously the story where uh, Ruth is, uh, comes back to the land of Israel, and her husband dies, and her husband's brother dies, and she's all alone, and she comes back to the land of Israel. And she goes, and she and Boaz, a, a, a distant relative of her husband, fall in love, and he wants to marry. But before he wants to marry her, he calls a ceremony where he, he calls up and he says, is there any relatives of Ruth who wants to marry her? Right? And a guy comes along. He says, hi. He says, do you want to take all her you know, lands? And stuff? He says, I'll take the land. Said, but then you have to take Ruth as well. And he's like, I don't want to marry her because she's a Moabite. Right? So Boaz says, okay, if you don't want to marry her, you have to perform this ceremony where you say you don't want to marry her, and then I'll marry her, says Boaz. But look at the ceremony and how it's described. And he says, uh, I cannot redeem it because I might give her my own state. So you redeem it. It's like, I'm fine. I'm, I'm giving up this root and all this business. I cannot do it. Now look, look at the verses in Ruth. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. So they're describing a ceremony in which a person takes off his own shoe and give it to the other side. And this was the method of legalized transaction in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself and remove his own sandal. So we have a description of a ceremony here in Israel. That is about property and a woman in which a, a, a person who's entitled to that, when he wants to disengage and say, and says, I don't want this. I don't want this. And take, you take this away. Take off his own shoe. Now, the rabbis had to deal with this contradiction. Who takes whose shoe off? Does the woman take the shoe off the husband, like in Deuteronomy, or does the man take off his own shoe? There's another difference. Obviously, here it's not the brother of. Uh, Ruth's husband, but a distant relative, so there's a few differences in the story. And indeed, the rabbis say the book of Ruth has nothing to do with the Chalitza and Deuteronomy. This is about legal transaction. So we, this is not a contradiction. When you do Chalitza with a wife, you do, she takes off the shoe. But you can't ignore, and modern research has really claimed that these two ceremonies are connected, that they're closely linked, right? There's a wife that you want, don't, don't want to marry, and you go to the city gate, and you take off a shoe, it's very, very similar, right? Even though there's differences. So, when the Christian writers write about the metaphorical reading of removing a shoe, they have what to rely on. 
which is the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, the description is that the person who doesn't want the other side takes off his own shoe. So they, then we put it very bluntly, the Christian reading metaphorically the taking off the shoe have what to rely on halakhically. If they choose the halakha of the book of Ruth to perform the halitha, which allows them, by the way, to read Moses taking off his shoe and Yoshua Binyan taking off his shoe and John the Baptist saying, I can't carry the shoe. It all has to be the person himself taking off the shoe. The whole metaphorical thing is based on the man himself taking off the shoe. They're not complete imbeciles because they have what to rely on in scripture, which is the book of Ruth, the description that is found in the book of Ruth. So according to Christian readers of the ceremony of Chalitza, the man takes off the shoe himself, which allows for the metaphor to work. So this is where we, we come back to, to the end. The story we found in Tractate Yevamut, according to which a heretic, a Christian heretic, comes to Rabban Gamliel and says, God has performed chalitza on you. He has disowned you. He doesn't want you anymore. And he did it through the ceremony of chalitza. Works very well, according to Christian halacha. And what's this halacha? This halacha is based on the book of Ruth, according to which a man takes off his own shoe to proclaim he doesn't want the other side. And they have what to rely on. And Hosea as well. He has chalat mehem. He has redrawn from them. He has taken off the shoe. And it works very well. And we see their metaphor being implemented on Joshua, on Moses, on John the Baptist, right? So we know they do this kind of interpretation. Whoever writes this story knows very well about Christian interpretation of the ceremony of Chalitza. Knows that the Christians are using Chalitza according to the book of Ruth. The man takes off his own shoe. They know that the Christians are using Chalitza to talk metaphorically about transfer of pharmacy, of chosenness, right? They know very well. But they are answering, you fool. You are theologically mistaken. Because according to rabbinic halacha, it goes by Deuteronomy, it only works if the wife takes off the shoe, if the people of Israel takes off the shoe. So we're in the clear. And you got it completely wrong because your halakha is not the right one. We have the right halakha and we're safe. Good answer according to rabbinic halakha, but by knowing the Christian background, and this is where I get a little bit big picture-y, if we understand rabbinic stories of heritage with Christian knowledge of what the Christians are saying in the fourth and the fifth century, and we go back and read the story, look how we gained another perspective of the story. This story, historically speaking, is extremely important because it portrays knowledge of rabbinic authors, of contemporary Christian claims of primacy, but also about rabbinic halacha, about chalitza. Whoever writes this knows about Ruth, a Christian interpretation, and what they're saying. And he portrays it in the story about a, a conversation between a heretic and a rabbi. And it's a conversation that's a very serious one. The Christian view is presented accurately. We can, we can retrace it to the original Christian views. And we can say, whoever writes, 
knows a lot about Christianity. So if you ask me, that's the question you're asking. What's the connection between Jews and Christians? That's a pretty good knowledge of Christian tradition. Whoever writes this knows. And how does he know? There's connection between Jews and Christians in the ancient world and in the times of the rabbis. And it bothers the rabbis enough for them to create the story and for us to read it and to put it into Christian too. And for us as readers, this is the call to read Christian interpretation in order to better understand the rabbinic creation. You need to understand what the, to know what the Christians are saying in order to better understand that the rabbis are doing here in this story. So I conclude my talk today by saying, this is how we should read the Talmud, or this is how we should read heretic stories. The heretic stories have a lot to teach us about Jewish-Christian interaction. We can learn a lot, but we have to invest time and effort in learning what the Christian view is in order to better understand the Christian, the heretic stories in the Babylonian Talmud. And once we do, the heretic story has so much to teach us about Jewish-Christian interaction in the first century CE and how much closer it was to, you know, to the rabbis and what, how much they knew much more than we give them credit for and we previously know. And for that, we need to be aware of the world in which they lived in. And the stories about heretics and the Talmud is a very good window to ask that question to learn that. So this is the class for today. Uh, and I have, we have a few minutes for questions and answers if you have any. Chaya. Hi, Sol. Hi, I have a question. Yes. Your argument about the knowledge about Christianity and Christianity uh, interpretation of the Bible is fine, it's convincing. But isn't Rabbi Gamliel also telling you about Nevi'im? that isn't Hosea's point exactly what the Christians accuse him of, or else he wouldn't use the word chalot. That in the poetic language of Hosea, he's telling the Jews, God has had enough of you. You won't find them. Good question. Now, so, go ahead. That if you push the point that this is an argument about rabbinic halacha and Christianity, the thing that gets, the topic that slips out of the middle is the Nevi'im, not the halacha, because Nevi'im don't do halacha. They do the relationship between God and man and justice. Wonderful, good question. And the, 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 the way, Christian writers do, and they do it quite often, is they take the words of the prophets that talk about the disappointment, right? The prophets are very disappointed in Israel in the period of the first temple, right? And they say either during the, the first temple period or right after or predicting the destruction of the first temple. And they take the words of the prophets who are very critical of Israel behavior and warning them about the, what's to come or explaining what come has is a punishment. And what they do is they take the words as proof for what's happening in the time of the second temple period, right? And they often do that. They look at uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and they say, this is what's happening now. When God said, I'm very upset with you, and he has turned away from you because you're misbehaving, this applies to our time too, 
This is like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, this, the relationship would never restored, right? That the building of the second temple didn't restore the, the, the chosenness of the time of people that was lost in the first temple. This is a move that's across the board in uh, all of Christian writers where they, the prophets talked about the first temple period, not the second, you know, temple period. And sometimes, by the way, the same prophet can have a horrible uh, nevoah prophecy about the people of Israel, but that can end, I don't know, first Isaiah and second Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah and second Isaiah has a very different tone because they're probably come from two different time periods where there's optimism versus pessimism about the people. And so it can, you know, change. It doesn't matter for the Christian writers because they pick the words that say God has forsaken his people, will forsaken people because you're misbehaving, and they interpret it on second temple period. And that, that's a move they do often. And this is the move here as well, right? So you're very, very right that this is about the sentiment. Because at the end of the day, the question here between the Jews and the Christian, and you're completely right about this, and they take the words of prophets who are completely Jews, right, or Israelites at this point, and a self-criticism, right, and within an inner criticism. And they use it to say, you're bad. And the prophet said you're bad. And the result is that God has forsaken you. Right? They take it all the way and they say, the result is that we are the new Israel. And this stands at the heart of the Jewish Christian argument in late antiquity and medieval time for sure, to talk about who God loved more, right? Who is God's chosen people. Mm -hmm. And they do it. What's interesting about this story is that the rabbis were very halachic, angle-wise, right? So the, 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 the verb halach mm -hmm. is interpreted here to, to, from, from turning away, which you're right, which is the spiritual idea is God has forsaken his people, to a very legalistic term that means he has performed the ceremony of Chalitza. And now this is important for us to know what the details of the ceremony are about, right? So what are the details of the ceremony itself? So this is why uh, you're completely right. This is about the, 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 the essence of it, of who, who's God's people. But the way they deal with that is through the ceremony of Chalitza itself, which I think is, is, is a very interesting fact. Once I started discovering that Christians do talk about the ceremony of Chalitza in connection to the bigger question of who's God's chosen people. So good question, Saul. Thank you. Hi, any, any other questions? Uh, not on Facebook. I think we earlier had a question from uh, Evelyn Hurt. Um, Evelyn, do you want to ask that or uh, if we've moved on? Let me no, I think it kind of got resolved in the discussion that followed. Okay. Uh, in that case, I think we are, I think that's it. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Baresh El-Sigal. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us. Um, and yeah, please check out 5783.drisha.org because we've got um, several things, uh, that we, classes, class series that are finishing up, but come for the last one, come for the last two, they're fantastic even on their own, uh, as well as some things coming up that are starting new classes. So please check that out and we'll see you all next week. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you.